Welcome to the Writer's Jihad. In Islam, jihad means the struggle for peace, the greatest of which is within ourselves. For most writers, we imagine that once we make it, we'll be at peace. But that's not true. The top professionals find peace as elusive as anyone else. The Writer's Jihad is a podcast series of interviews with writers at different points in their careers talking about the struggle for peace in their industry. Every award-winning professional began as an unpublished amateur. We all start at the same place. We all face the same struggles. And we shouldn't hide those struggles behind the mystique of the craft, nor the glamour of success. If we can help each other, we should. So today, I've got Daniel Joshua Rubin. Hi, DJR. Can you introduce I've yourself asked. for us? Yes. Uh, my name is Daniel Joshua Rubin. I'm a playwright, TV writer, who uh, wrote a book last year called 27 Essential Principles of Story, Master the Secrets of Great Storytelling from Shakespeare to South Park. That's the real title. I pitched them blood on the page that did not work. And, blood on and, the page? Uh, yeah, oh, I thought that was a good title. That is a and good title. <laughs> I know. Uh, someone can have it. They, I think they thought it would read like true crime or uh, I was making the case that you got to bleed and uh, that whole message of torture and pain right. and thinking until your forehead bleeds. Right. Probably not the best in sell books, but, um, but like my publisher was awesome and they, they did a great job. But no, so I, I wrote that book and uh, now I am uh, trying to live up to the ideals of that book by actually writing something based on some of the principles in my own book, which I think would be super cool. That would be cool. So, so, so tell, tell people, uh, you, you, but we've been chatting before we recorded and, uh, I got to tell you, uh, you, you, you're a good storyteller. You just tell your stories. And so can you tell people, um, the, cause you were talking about how you, you grew up in LA, right? You grew up in Hollywood. You went to you went to no you no not Hollywood. You went yeah. to Yale, right? You went to Yale. Yeah, from New York. Okay, yeah. Then I met my wife who was from Chicago and I lived here seven years and then I went to LA to become Mr. Big Shot TV guy. And then I burnt out after eleven years in LA and I came back here. Yeah, okay. Um, now, now you're making me look like a fool because I tell people how good you are a storyteller and you tell it that way. You'd left out the Ethan Hawke directing. You, left, left, you, you didn't talk about... No, I can get into the... Yeah, yeah, yeah well, tell people. I, I think I have had a really interesting writing life. I was at Yale and I was probably as young as you could possibly be being at Yale. And I uh, wrote a couple plays and... I got out of Yale. I went. I had a great time. Yeah, I had an amazing class. Like holy mm. shit! I mean, we had Liam Schreiber, Paul Giamatti, um, the woman who directed three of my plays is Anna Di Shapiro, who's won the Tony Award. Who's directing? Uh, she's the number one um, woman who's ever directed on Broadway. I mean, wow. She's the one who introduced me to my wife. So um, yeah, so I got out of the gate really, really strong. Yeah. And then I came to Chicago and I wrote a couple of plays. I had one play produced by Ethan, directed by Ethan Hawke, who Steve Zahn was in it. Oh. Shit was going really, really well. Yeah. My plays were getting done on a regular basis. But so what happened was when I was in Chicago, I wrote a play. And it's, it's funny, this was 25 years ago, which is 
horrifying to admit. But it was 25 <laughs> years ago, and it was a, a play where the prison system comes into your house. Right. So you, you basically have to adopt a prisoner. And it's kind of a, a hybrid of liberals and conservatives because a lot of liberals think this is great. Let's, let's take response. But the idea is you adopt a prisoner, and then when you let him go, your ass is on the line too. You can say, hey, I think you should send this guy back. But if you let him go and he commits a crime, it's on you. Ah, so, like it, so in this play, the, the big first plot twist is the prisoner is clearly not who's in the file. Right. And the the and the prisoner is an African-American dude and the, the jailer is a white liberal guy. And it's about a dark turn. Um, but anyway, so that play, when it was done, it, it, it was the beginning of this era we're in of ultra-political correctness. And, and, I, and, and I noticed that little by little, I, I castrated the play. So that I was right. sitting there on opening night and I was like going, dear God, what is this thing is horrible. Right. What is this? It's not what I wanted to do. Right, right. But I didn't, I didn't understand all that. So my, that it's sort of a, so what I feel like my 25 year journey that hopefully we'll, I'll be able to talk in interesting ways about has been a journey of going from graduating from fancy pants grad school to where I am right this very second, mm. which is now I think I know how to write and how to sure. manage the emotions of being a writer yeah. and how to live the writing life. Yeah. And and how to navigate criticism, pressure, and and just all the shit. Like back then, I was like, everyone took, did I offend you guys? It's like, right. oh, like the actor was deeply offended by. He's like, how could you? One of the actors in a reading was like, how could you put a black man in a cage? It's disgusting. Right. Like, America has more black men in cages than like any place like in human history. I, I'm just putting it in the living room. I, yeah. I'm making a point. Yeah. I didn't have the ability. I was just like so worried about yeah. it. So so I was very small. So, um, so I moved, I went to LA. I had I, what I what can only be called a journeyman career where I, I had big agents. Um, I actually, had, do you remember the show Just Shoot Me? No. It was a show, it was a sitcom in, in here. It was a sitcom. And, um, actually another guy I went to grad school with Rico Colantoni. You know him? He's a great actor. Okay. He's the guy, the sweet character in Galaxy Quest. Remember, there's like a an alien who's actually like a real sweet guy. Oh, hey, he, wait, yeah, the guy from yeah. Veronica Mars. Yes, I love yes. that guy. I love That's that guy. guy and a great guy. and truly, truly a great guy. I One love of my good friend in grad school. But anyway, um, I once wrote an episode of uh, I was. This is funny. Talk about a a plot twist in 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 learning who you are by by the gap, as McGee calls it. So anyway. I I actually I'm gonna ramble a bit. There's just no way about it. But I when I was in LA, I wanted to make an impact so bad yeah. that I wrote I adapted my pilot my I mean my spec script of just shoot me. I had agents of William Morris. Yeah. Super thought I was like I'm gonna show you guys how TV should be. Right. And I adopted you know, during Mott's The Visit. No. It's it's this wild play where a decrepit old billionaire lady comes to a town <laughs> and she's seriously she's come to the town and we don't know it but she's basically good she's she's inherited a gazillion dollars from her dead husband 
And now she's basically paying people to slowly drive the guy who broke her heart mad and to <laughs> kill him. And I thought it would be a good idea to adapt my spec script of Just Shoot Me into the visit. It has to be the worst script ever written. So I literally, I went to my agents thinking, how about this? Well, here we go. And I'm not kidding you. They fired me. They said, we don't even know what to do with you. And we think you, you'd be better served not being represented by William Morris. <laughs> so I left telling my wife, here it goes, honey. This is going to be huge. Give me a development deal. And I drove in my fancy car that I had no right buying because I thought I was huge. And I walked out of William Morris and the sunny oh. Beverly Hills. And I had like a cool guy outfit. Oh. And I realized, oh, my God, I have no agent. I have no job. I have all these bills. <laughs> And, and, and because of this, it was like Icarus. This 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 fall. Like I can fly into the sun. I can do what I want. You can't stop me. It was, it was Icarus if he fell into a ship of manure and then the ship drowned and he got eaten by sharks. And only so, if that ship of manure was there because he put it there. And everyone said, "Don't put yeah. it there. There's sharks there." And he went, "No, no, no." Watch this landing. Yeah. <laughs> right? oh, but it's such, it was, my journey it. in LA was insane. So I then I literally, I had a daughter in private school. I had a nice house, had a fancy car. And we were really like, holy crap. I know my wife does well enough. But like back then she was more being a mom for a little girl. Mm. So I had to take a job as a beer vendor at a rodeo in Vegas, because my friends ran the beer. Right. And, um, should I tell you that real quick? Because it was pretty funny. <laughs> should I, or am I getting too far into the weeds? Go, go but it was unbelievable. This Dude, unbelievable if you start a story with, I was a beer vendor for a rodeo in Vegas, I've got to hear the rest of this story. <laughs> not... Sure. I, no, I'm not kidding you. This is gospel truth. So I get there, and I come from Brooklyn. I come literally from, like, not really the, like, good fellas, mm. but my neighborhood in Bensonhurst, and I grew up in, like, Brighton Beach, Bensonhurst, Bay Ridge. I'd say we were mob adjacent. Like, this guy had an <laughs> uncle who was terrifying, and he acted like he was in Goodfellas, my friends, but they weren't really that. Mob adjacent. But so these guys owned the – they had the rights to sell beer at, at the big arena in Vegas. So they said, Ruben, come out. You won't believe how much these cowboys drink. It's <laughs> 10 nights in a row of a rodeo, and you'll make good money. So I'm like, shit, I got to do this. I got to make money. So I drive down there. They put a broken baseball hat on my head. They put a giant shirt on me. And you have no idea how fucking heavy, pardon my French, like 100 beers in a bucket is. It's heavy. So then they put like an apron on me and they give me a big wad of cash and they send me into the arena to sell beers to the cowboys. <laughs> and while I'm going to the arena, one of my Italian friends spills toxic chemicals. I'm not made up all over my bucket because he wants to block me from selling beer so that he can sell more beer. <laughs> so I sell like seven beers the first night and I'm literally almost crying. I've made like $9. I, I have no career, and I say to myself, you know, you're, you're not a beer vendor, so don't worry, this is just it. And I, and I went, no, 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 motherfucker, you're a beer vendor. You're, you're vending beer. You're not a writer. 
you're a beer vendor. That's what you do. And I was like, okay, well, let's let's then let's vend beer. And I swear to God, it worked just like a, a, a Rocky movie. I every night, if you sold the most beer, you won like a bonus, like a hundred bucks, and which was felt like a lot back. And and then so I swear to God, every night at the every, this was gospel truth. Every night I got a little better and I kept climbing up the list. And the last night I wanted to win so bad. I took ephedrine before that was like, we knew that that caused diseases. And, and I'm going to go to hell for this. But I figured out that the Cowboys got nervous like 15 minutes before the event closed because they'd stop. You can't believe the beer consumption. It's, it's unimaginable. It's billions of beers. And I realized that if I took three buckets of beer to the door where you're not supposed to sell because you don't want people driving drunk, but you could sell those buckets out in 30 seconds, right? Well, here, guys, take one for the road. I have to win. My ego's on the line. And, oh, my God, I sold thousands of dollars worth of beer, and I won the contest. And then get a load of this. I wrote a short story about that called The Beer Man, sold that to National Lampoon, and National Lampoon was going through a thing where this one awesome executive wanted to make it like old classic National Lampoon, but a venture capitalist who wound up in jail for insider trading or some kind of thing ran it, and we came very close to selling it. And I'm not just saying that. It was it was real close, and we lost to Reno 911. Do you know that show? I do know that show. I've heard of that show. I, th I think I saw one or two episodes when I was in America once. It was funny. Yeah. And it beat us. But for six weeks, we were neck and neck with Reno 911, which was going to get on the schedule. Here, we, we, your show yeah. got on this on the on the, on TV. Well, we were gonna. We were. We National Lampoon got a deal with I can't remember who to go together to, to Comedy Central, mm. and Comedy Central loved both pitches. Uh, and we, they, my guys were sending them fruit baskets, and we made merchandise. And I was and I was hoping that I was going to get to see this because as you were telling the story in my head. I, I just kept picturing Hugh Jackman in, in the role of you trying to sell beer to cowboys. Right. So that's the no, I'm not kidding. The funniest thing was really, it, and it was a show that was going to be about a kid who had a big career in LA. I was going to exaggerate that a little bit. And this is totally true. The guy who ran the beer room was a little guy. Imagine if Al Pacino was <laughs> run out like a washcloth and white as a ghost and looked like a vampire. And I'm not kidding. The guy who ran the room was an ex-mobster. Al <laughs> Lifetime criminal. You can't make this up. And he <laughs> died in the gutter. I swear to God. And he's the longest. He's in some kind of record book for the longest. Um, like, like, he was dead. They were putting him in the drawer. And he swears to God that he was touched by grace, woke up. He came out of the drawer, and and and, and we called him Dead Dom. Oh, and oh, oh, so, oh, yes. So I wanted the show to be about this Jewish kid oh. learning to be a gritty, real dude from this guy, oh. and he's like mobster wise guy, half the most enlightened, half like, Lazarus, Eastern. He's an amazing guy. He's still my friend to this day. Half, half mobster, uh, half Lazarus. I mean, yes. That's 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 He's an amazing. That's a great elevator pitch. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I 
you know, we, we just couldn't get, then literally, then by coincidence, I was at a party in LA and this guy was there who's an actor who was in the first play I ever got done in a little tiny theater in Chicago. And he was, you know, he was the first lead of any play I ever did. And his wife says to me, why do I know you? And I said, well, what do you mean? I don't know. And she said, are, are you beer, beer man? And I said, yeah, why? She goes, oh, she goes, I'm an executive at, at Comedy Central. And I, I hope this doesn't make you feel bad. She goes, but you came as close as you could come and still lose. And I was like, oh. You know, and she, she, like, and literally it was toe to toe. And so we, I, and I have, I, I won't tell you more, but I, that's, those are my, that was my career. Well, this, all incidents. This is a this is a great and um, uh, I should have cut you off ten minutes ago uh, when you had a perfect segue lined up for the rest of this talk, but instead you just kept going with this fantastic story that I couldn't not hear the rest yeah, of. Yeah. I could not hear Bye. it. I had to hear it. I had to hear it. I don't care. I had to hear that story. So okay. what we were going to talk about? <laughs> yes, I'll get to that. I, I can get to that. What we were going to talk about? I mean, it's only been twenty minutes. What we were going to talk about was was. I might just have the outtakes because <laughs> I can't. I can't. I structured me. Just don't worry. Oh, I love it. I'm a bum. No, I love it. I love this. I love this. So, what 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 you mentioned uh, before we started, which was I thought interesting, was this sense of you, you were telling this story um, about this feeling that you had, which was when you get off, when you had a nine to five job and how different that was when you're a writer. And the way you phrased yeah. it to me, which I really loved, was there is this constant thought in your head, like, Everyone else gets to go off at work at, when, at five o'clock, work is over, and they're done, and they can do what they want. But because you're a writer or you're an artist, 24-7 in your head is this thought, why aren't you Shakespeare yet? Yeah. And uh, I thought that would be, I thought, I thought that was great. And so, do you want to, uh, so, I mean, it's great, because you've, to you've told us now all about this, this fantastic <laughs> backstory that you have. but. So do you want to get to this point now where uh, this, this, this moment, this yeah. epiphany? Yeah, I think one of the things we were talking about, and, and it's funny because it was a part of my book that got, got cut, cut out. Yes. And that I don't think we talk enough nearly to mm. young writers about the reality of living the writing life, of mm. the emotions, the pressures, mm. the, just the human struggles. We talk about structure, and, and that's great. You have to talk about stuff. Yeah. And we study films and we break down stories. Yeah. But it's the emotional inner world and it's the navigating pressure and it's writing under pressure that, that I feel is needs a lot more discussion. Yeah. And so for me, I feel like my 20, and I'm mean, going to promise I'm going to get to the thing we were just saying, that incident, <laughs> that moment is my whole but life first, has been. But first, here's a segue where I, uh, <laughs> where I was. <laughs> We're gonna get there, but first let me tell you about the time that I was wrestling uh, <laughs> in New Mexico I, City in the Luca Libra. Sorry, I, I talk too much. No, okay. No, but this no, is a compliment I just, because I want to hear those stories. Please. I want to hear no, them. Go, go. 
Part, all I want to say really quick is bottom line is my my journey was about in the last 25 years has mm. been about figuring out how to be a writer sure. how to live in the world as a writer mm. and what what we were talking about before is i left la and i took a nine to five job it was actually 7 30 a.m to 4 p.m mm. and i took a job where i was working in agricultural risk management with what i call the ape colony like 50 macho guys who trade commodities all day and deal with millions of dollars trading futures and options and when four o'clock would come for these guys, you went to the bar and you hung out or you went to the right. Cubs game and you had fun. Right. And I have never had fun in my life ever, never. And never. especially because I got into Yale, it actually tagged me with this, like, you're supposed to be something. You're, right. You went to Yale. You're, so, right. like, I live with this pressure and this, this nonstop feeling of you should already you know, yeah. I would look at the biographies of every writer, Joe Orton, you know, whoever it was, any great writer. Mm. And I was talking about how um, I would often watch these guys go and have fun. And I didn't know how to integrate my life into being a writer. But the thing is, the thing I did want to talk about, and tell me if this is is, is hopefully on point, is... I think when you think you're a writer and when you live for external validation, and I'm a really interesting, in my opinion, writer in that I've had cool success. You know, I've been a writer on a TV show. I've had plays produced at pretty good theaters, but I've also been a tremendous bum and failed. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just objective truth. So, I mean, I've had periods where I made no money for years, and I'm not talking about... 10,000, 15,000, 25. I'm talking about goose eggs, right? I'm telling my wife, this screenplay, oh, this is going to make millions for this sale, so don't worry about it. I got it. It's, I understand I didn't make any money for 18 months, and I understand there are bills, and I understand I'm hungry and I like a nice meal, but when you see this screenplay, it, we all know it's going to... And for me, it was particularly problematic because I did have some... I had good representation, and I had enough reason to think that actually there was some legitimacy to bullshit that was tumbling out of my mouth. But, but I think the big thing that we were talking about before that for me was the defining moment of like my life right now is while I was at work, uh, we had a series of thunderstorms just whomp Chicago, and I'm watching my coworkers stumble in at 7.30 in the morning. They're still there on time. Their basements are flooded. Their kids couldn't get to school. Their roofs are damaged. They don't know how they're going to make ends meet, some of them. And I remember having the most profound thought, which is, you're not better than these people right. because you were a writer. Right. Even if you won the Pulitzer. These are great people working their living asses off, and you're, you were a douchebag to ever act the way you used to act. And I did. And But what, for me, it was like, my guys were mean, though. They knew that I had some success in writing. And I, once, I used to write postcards for farmers, and often I'd write, attention, cattlemen, would be like the top of my postcard. Yeah. And guys would come up and go, Ruben, did you, when you were at Yale, did you think... Did you think this would be the, the height of your writing career? They were brutal. And I'm like, no, oh, I didn't think that. But but I do remember, I truly believe this, that I started realizing that my identity had finally been separate, that my worth as a human being 
had nothing to do with the quality of my writing. At least I really believe that. And that's spiritual. I don't know what you want to say, but like I had separated those two things. And I remember walking home in the big Chicago cold in the winter mm. and fully realizing, like, I was getting a regular paycheck every week, and it was shocking. It's like, you guys are giving me another one? You just gave me one last week. I just couldn't believe it because it never happened to me. Mm. I mean, you know, TV shows that I was actually on would always have a gift for getting canceled really quick. And yeah. <laughs> But I remember being in that winter cold and realizing – I don't ever have to write again. And and the shock is no one cares. Yeah. No agents calling up on Ruben. Yeah. Even my best friends who were directors and, and all kinds, no one cares. And it's yeah. not because they're selfish or mean. It's because they have their own children and their own ingrown toenails and their own mortgage problems. And they, they're not waking up thinking, is Dan writing his masterpiece? And I swear it was the greatest feeling in the world because that's the moment. And this is so corny, what I'm going to say, but I, it's true. The minute I quit being a writer, I suddenly felt like all this, like a well of emotion and desire to write. And I started thinking, now I'm a writer. Like, now I can do this. Like, it doesn't matter. Nobody needs it. I don't need it. No one needs it. My wife wasn't even saying, like, Honey, you know, this is your dream and any of that shit. She was just like, bring home a paycheck. The kid has, you know, the kid gets sick and has bills. And, and college is going to be like 200 grand. So anyway, that was the greatest moment of my life. And, and I'll, I, just so you know, I decided to take a breath and start journaling all my favorite principles that I gathered of writing. Mm. Like I collect books on writing. And and I love them. I think really. And often I'll read a terrible book, but I'll find something where I'm like, damn, this guy. I like the way this guy words it. So, and it was just for me. And I'm convinced there's some bizarre law in our crazy world that when your heart is in the right place, people do notice it, and good things happen. So after I built my journal, which was going to just be for me to to fuel the rest of my career. I thought this is a pretty good collection of principles. And I called a big agent who I'd heard was a really nice person. And sure enough, she signed me right away and sold my book. So like that became my book. And so anyway, that was my, my journey of, um, I hope I didn't wander too far there. No, no, but that was that, excellent. Why'd you keep doing this to yourself? That was great. <laughs> Well, I don't. Okay. I don't know. Uh, I don't know why you keep apologizing. I'm. I'm not speaking because I'm listening. And <laughs> like, what am I going to interject? Oh. What am I going to interject yeah. into that? <laughs> it's great, but I mean, that's um, yeah. I think that's fantastic. I, I, I definitely. Whenever people ask me, you know, what do you do, and I say, well, I'm, I'm a writer. They, 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 they often go like, oh wow, that's that's lovely, and and, and I'm like you don't get what it's like to not be able to go off work that everything is constantly at work and i i and sometimes i i i recently told this to a friend of mine he, he runs a, a coffee shop and i and i said to him one of the problems that's been happening with the pandemic that's probably hit you now as well is a lot of the ways that you we deal with stress or we decompress have been denied because you can't go out and do the thing and when i started uh, when I when I signed uh, my deal with McKee back in 2010, 
Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, suddenly something changed. And I couldn't enjoy... I was getting really wound up and just so stressy all the time. And it was yeah. because the way I used to relax was I would watch shows and I would read comics and I would watch films and that's how I would relax. But now all yeah. that was work. Right. So I have no outlet to decompress. So I had to realize that I had to find something else to do to decompress. And so, you know, I started working out. I started playing board yeah. games and so on. Um, and so for, I, I, it was, and so I would explain to people, like, when you finish work, you get to go home and you get to do things. When I finish writing, sometimes I don't finish writing because I finished the day. I finish writing because I'm really hungry. I haven't eaten properly today. And I have to go home because it's almost bedtime. And I'm exhausted. Yeah. And I haven't finished what I was doing. And I don't know how to finish it. And I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Because I don't have any blueprint for what's going to happen next. And uh, I'm going to get completely wiped. And I'm wiped out. And I, you know, that this is a, a problem where, you know, you'll write for ages. And so because you don't have that ability to just turn off, as it were, it, it, it presses on you. And then you're right. There is that ego of, well, why aren't you Shakespeare yet? Why, you know, and I like this, I like this thinking that, like, that's just ego. That's just you thinking you're supposed to because you're somehow, and <clears throat> I can't stand that thinking because, um, but I guess I'm guilty of it. But I can't stand it. I get I get that a lot when, when um, people who are very sort of anti any teaching of art, who act like art is somehow mystical, they often are, talk about art like the muse has bestowed upon you the gift of writing or the gift of acting or the gift of music. And I'm like, isn't it lucky that the muse picked you, right? Aren't you lucky? Uh, and I always, I, I always see through that because these are people who, who refuse. They don't want to learn anything. They don't want to be taught anything yeah. because they think they're special and that, and their art's never very good. But they think they're just these natural creative geniuses. And like, and, well, I'm really glad that the muse picked you. But for all the people out there who the muse didn't pick, maybe those people need guidance, right? Because they want to do it too. And they should be allowed to have that chance. So, um, but I guess I'm guilty of that ego in the sense of like, yeah, that pressure of why aren't you Shakespeare yet? Why haven't you done this amazing thing yet? And it's like, well, because maybe, you know, that's not what it's about. I, 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 I mean, I, I, I don't know, but um, I, I get it. I get that, that, that feeling of just that constant, like you can't turn off, you can't. Well, one of the things that was so awesome about my book and is I had so much time to re YouTube is unbelievable. I mean, you really can, you know, like one of the things that jumped out at me and I really started noticing patterns is that all the writers I gravitate toward, Tony Morrison was one, Juno Diaz wrote Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, um, Alison Bechdel who wrote an unbelievable, I think Fun Home is just a spectacular graphic novel and just an amazing, and Alison Bechdel, I think took seven years to do that. Juno Diaz took 11. He was a moving man when he wasn't. And then he, it, and Toni Morrison never took contracts to write. Mm. She wanted her writing separate from how she made a living. She edited mm. and they figured that out. 
like it was they wrote to like like all three of those are beloved is in my book fun home and oscar wow those are deeply deeply personal things for those three writers that they desperately needed to figure out in order to live Mm. and this is not this is not like like flighty stuff this is everything you know like juno diaz it would turn out wrote about that he was raped as a child and when you hear the truth of what happened to him then go back and read the novel because that came out after his that news came out after the novel that novel is is you get the feeling this guy would have died if he didn't write that novel figure out who he was and and that's been the greatest most liberating thing in the world to me is I, I I see it all the time and it's really tragic and it's funny we're we're discouraged from confronting the dark side but in LA right now among a lot of people I know are people suffering unimaginable spiritual pain mm. in that they're 42 45 mm. 50 55 and it hasn't happened for them yet this, right. this blessing of yeah. external validation right and yet they can write the biggest piece of shit ever written, but it gets on TV, they get money, and then they walk around and they ball on, and it's like, nope, it actually doesn't work like that. Those people are levels of miserable, again, negation of the negation. That's a, right. That monstrosity in the Hollywood Hills with his multi-millions of dollars, mm-hmm. but he knows that what he's written is shit. Yeah. That's yeah. a monster. It's not even a human being. Yeah. So this... Yeah has been a big part of my journey is to talk about this and to teach this and to it's a huge part of my book what i do like about my book is i talk to the reader very much as if Mm. you need to do this because it's something you have to it's too hard Mm. and also as a business like i i enjoy investing if you are going to invest your life in something that has a million one shot and again you're not so this is this, to be honest, it's not much of that is in my book. I really did want to talk about that. Just break down the odds. Just be a, if you're going to make right. this your money, be reasonable and look at the odds. Yeah, yeah. There are. I, I remember. Beyond. I remember. I did. Uh, I, I was doing the action lecture in um, Los Angeles. Uh-huh. A guy came up to me. Uh, he was. I think he was in his early twenties, and he asked me whether or not he should leave his hometown and move to Hollywood to write. Yeah. And I I just said to him, like, I haven't got a clue. You know? I mean, I, I don't know. And I said, look, all I can tell you is this. Like, there are people who leave and they go to L.A. and they try and make it and some of them make it and some of them don't. And that's that. But there are other people who never leave their hometown and they make it. Uh, and I and he was he he I think he he mentioned comics and Watchmen because I talk about Watchmen. Um, and he, I said to him, Alan Moore has never left Northampton and he's the greatest comic writer who's ever lived. Right. And yeah. but he never left Northampton. He doesn't even have a passport. So. Don't so I just said to him like you know you've got to work out what's best for you if and and then I told him what I what I did personally what I personally did and what I personally did is I took stock of what uh, resources I had 
and therefore what can I make as opposed to because I said I because I'm not someone I cannot I cannot handle um the I, I can't handle like someone else just being able to say yes or no no matter how much work I put into something or whatever I I can't handle that stuff it, it just it it's very annoying when because I did, I did a bit of uh, theatre when I was younger. I, did, I was part of like a little amateur dramatics place, and uh-huh. you know we would get to put on our plays, and there are plays. And when this senior section would get involved, they sometimes just like say, "No, can't do this." And I'm like, "You're not involved. Why are you sticking your nose in? What's this got to do with you?" And they have their rules that I had to play by for some reason. I'm like, I don't understand what look. I just want to do the play. I want to do this. I want to do that. And there, and and so there was this constant. And I'm like, you know what? I I can't be bothered to do that because that's not why I'm do- I'm not doing this to please someone else. So I would I took a note of like what can I do, and then I'm going to do something that I can actually get done. I want it to get published. I don't want to spend four years writing something and then have someone else determine whether or not it gets made. I, I can't be I can't be bothered with that. Uh, I have I have a huge hang up right now with our IP laws because Spider Man is twenty years older than me and he should be in the public domain and it drives me crazy that he's not. Where I'm uh, of a generation that did not get to be influenced by its own culture because all the things I grew up loving are still copyrightable and trademarked, whereas just what. A hundred years ago, everything that was being written was based like this idea that we have to create everything ex nihilo is nonsense. It's just not true. Everyone oh. else, yeah. all these stories, they had them as kids. They grew up with them, and then they were able to own them. And that was the ne- that their generation, and the next generation did the same thing, and it just keeps going. Oh, but not, yeah. but not for us. We all of our stuff is being owned by corporate shareholders who have no, no right to these characters. There's no right to them. So I have a bit of a hang up with that. So I'm already on this position of like, I shouldn't have to ask someone whether or not I want to write a Spider-Man story because you shouldn't, no one else should own him. You know, Stan Lee's dead. Steve Ditko's dead. It's finished, right? So, so I have this hang up, right? Um, and if it's work for hire, I guess that's different, right? If someone says, we'd like you to do this project, I'm like, okay, that's fine. It's not my thing. But if I am making something and it's, my thing and i have to ask someone else and i'm like if i don't have authority over my own creations what's the point right why am i investing in what you know so i just said to him like so i took a note of everything i could do and i decided that's what i'm going to do so and i just said look those are your options you can either stay there where you are and do this thing and pitch and do that or you can go somewhere else and do the pitching, or you can stay at home and do your own thing and just make sure it gets out there, like small YouTube videos or whatever. But I just said, like, you've got, I don't know you, so I don't know what you can do. I don't know what resources you have. I don't know what's best for you, but the, you just got to think, like, what is it you really want to do? And then what's the best way to get that? Um, and it, it's it's weird because that's not you, you're right people don't they don't talk about that they don't necessarily sort of teach that kind of stuff right mm. um, yeah but like seven years of 
60 degrees and no one mentioned it. No yeah. one mentioned it. No. Never once I'm in freaking Yale School of Drama, not one person ever said, hey, you know who you marry? That's going to be pretty important. Yeah. Like, I talk to my daughter about that all the time. Like, Sal, my name's Sally. And I'm like, good luck getting any writing done if you're getting that, if you're not nagged, but like getting insulted or getting or living in tension or right. someone who's needy because being married to a writer is a nightmare. I do, yeah. I just realized this now that I live in perpetual terror that the big inspiration will come when we have company, right? I got to go to a barbecue. Yeah. And I'm the mid, we have people visit us today, lovely, wonderful people, old friends of my wife. Yeah. And I'm like, shit, bitch, I got work to do today. I don't know. This is horrible. And my wife, thank God, is finally learning to just let yeah. me vent and we will I'll go to the restaurant and I'll be a champ of the guy. Yeah. But in my mind, it's, it, it is a really rough thing to navigate the, but I think yeah. that it's funny. I actually, have a thing now with a, a notable TV writer called me because she wants she she's gonna take my domain name. And she had said to me, we had talked in just a little bit, and I, I asked her how her Netflix deal was going, and she said something like, she said it's so matter of fact, mm. it was something in the ballpark of I know how to get those guys to let me do what I want. Mm. And I was like, this woman has a great career, 20 years of writing and I mean, very successful. And I was like, that's what I want to talk. How did you do that? Like, how right. that's hard. Because yeah. I went to LA and was like, everybody tell me what to do. Like me. Yeah. Don't throw me out. Like, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and that is one thing I did notice about the most successful writers. They don't take shit. No. They, they don't act. They were never, ever. And I hate to insult this wonderful man that met you and asked you that. But I can promise you, if I can name 10 writers I'm thinking of right now, they're never going to a lecture and, and going to the instructor and going, can you tell me what to do with my, they know what to do and they yeah. do it, I think. And they do it aggressively. Yeah. I, I doubt out. I was worried where he was. Yeah. He's too busy writing great things. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, but this, this is what happens. And I, I felt like it was a, I, I mean, I felt it was a really natural question to ask. Uh, I'm sure all these great writers at some point, they asked themselves that question. They got the answer and then they was committed to it. But he hadn't got his answer yet, and and I couldn't give it to him. So, you know, what else can I say? I, like, I, I just can say you've got to work it out, right? But, um, but, but there's this sense, this idea that somehow, like, you've got to do. There's a certain way you're supposed to do it, and, um, and and it's just like no, no. There's 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 a you've got to find that way for you in that way. You've got to. I don't know. I forget why I brought that up. But I do think where we're getting at, the important thing is, and this comes up with me again and again and again, and when, in all my research, I never, I can't think of one work, of notable work that doesn't, the people, they know who they are, mm. they know what their genre is, they know what their media is. Mm. Like, you look at Stephen King, the man, look at the what he loves, mm. what he writes, that he writes fiction, it's a perfect alignment. And that foundation of a human being, I think it's it's a that's a huge thing. And I think people who aren't as confident or who are lost and they try a little of this and they try a little of that and they try I know I'm saying controversial stuff here, but 
and I know it's not a hundred percent true a hundred percent of the time, yeah. but I can't think of anyone in any art that doesn't fit this, that you never see a biography of the writer and think that person wrote that, that like right. you, you talk about like Beckett stand supposedly there was a story about Samuel Beckett being on the, on a pier in the middle of the night and the snow pounding down and him mm-hmm. realizing I am always going to be depressed. Depression is part of who I am. Mm. And then he writes Waiting for Godot and um, yeah. Endgame. And, I mean, so so that, I think, is the key lesson of this. But that's the terror. Because once you realize, and this is why it's funny, I wanted the cover of my book mm. to be a guy standing in front of a, of a forest. Because I feel like the idea of studying the principles is I can get you to the forest, hmm. but you're going there by yourself. You're going to go in there, yeah. I can't yeah. walk with you. You're going to walk that lonesome road alone, as they yeah. say. And, yeah. and that's the biggest thing, is that you have to have the courage to face the truth of who you are. And maybe that sounds lofty or even a little pretentious, but that's the reality. And that's terrifying beyond... That's where War of Art, I think, really does nail it. That that resistance will come, and it will come for you hard, mm. hard. Like, like when I was writing my book, I was in the fetal position one day, and I we we got in a mess where there was a lot of trouble. My editor had left, and she came back, and I had literally to write one chapter every day for like sixteen days to hit my deadline, and there was no room for for error. Like this was the draft, yeah. and I thought, okay, I'm definitely gonna not. They're not gonna take my book. I mean, right. no way I can do this, and. And facing that terror ended up was super cool. I mean, I think I got through it. I, I actually like my book, but like no one talks about that moment. Like, what do you do? I'm not, I'm not kidding. I was on the floor in my studio in the dark. And I had I was practicing my speech to my agent and my publisher to say, I'm not man enough. Can't do this. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I'll give you back the advance and just let's be friends. Okay. And, and it's funny, I actually listened to this wild man Navy SEAL, his name's Jocko Willink, and he has this thing about facing death, and he talks about, if you're, you're going to die anyway, it's how you go that matters. Sure. He's like, if you lose your gun, get your knife. If you lose your knife, start punching <laughs> in the fist, but you will fight until you die. And that spoke to me. And, and, yes. You know, this thing started with you telling me I look like Rogan. And it's funny, because <laughs> I saw Jocko Willink on the Joe Rogan show. Right. And that, that, but, but that facing the darkness and the truth of who you are, it has to be talked about way more. Yeah. I happen to think the principles get you there. Yeah. That's the biggest misunderstanding is people think the principles are some bullshit formula. It's the exact opposite. Yeah, it's not. A great principle leads you deeper into who you yeah. are and then you poop your pants. <laughs> well, you see, that's the bit I disagree with. Um, okay. That's the bit I disagree with. I think it's true really? that, yeah, yeah, I think it's true that um, some people, when they write, they they look for that deep stuff, and uh-huh. and they they and they they that that's that's something in them that has to come out. I think though some people, it's not how they, it's not why they write, uh, and they can produce wonderful things. Like uh, Chuck Jones, uh, his Looney Tunes. There's no white. We know how. <laughs> I, you know how they wrote the Looney Tunes. I love this. They had these meetings, 
uh, and they were called yes meetings. You weren't allowed to say no. You couldn't say don't. You couldn't say anything negative. You could only say positive things. Okay. And that's how they made the Wile E. Coyote cartoons. It's how they made all those Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, Rabbit Season, Duck Season, and What's Up. And these things are amazing. They're amazing. But they're not that internal journey. Those are expressions of, of craft, of uh, uh, and they're not an in, they're not an invert they're not like a introspection. I mean, obviously these characters they will look at them at some point, and there's there's a self awareness. There's always a self awareness that comes when you start to be self aware of how you make things, and you're self aware of what you're saying, and you're self aware of how you're expressing it. But the self awareness of what you're doing and how you're doing it and where it's coming from isn't always necessarily this deep introspection and introspective journey it can be for some people it can be for some people they thrive they thrive on that but sometimes you know like no that's not it that's not it at all well i i definitely agree that unleashing from a primal place without thinking about any of this shit mm. can be amazing you don't have to sit there and go, my mommy was so critical of me, and you wish, you know, I was. But you don't have to think about yeah. that all the time, yeah. without a doubt. But I would argue, do you know Wiley Coyote? You know the thing about that? What's that? It's a major political statement. <laughs> I, I swear, I'm not, I, this is true. You, Google this. Yes. It's a satire of extremism. You've never seen that document? There's a document about why, why Wile E. Coyote is, is an extremist right. and what it is satirizing. It's very, I'm not, I'm not making it's very political and, and it's very, it's more relevant than ever now, which is probably why we still love that character. I, I think he's a, he's a big cat and he always destroys himself with his extremism, his obsession to kill the Roadrunner, and there's a there's a guidebook. Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing document. Yeah. You'll love it if you. Uh, yeah, no, the guide the guidebook in it. One of my favorite things in it is that the Roadrunner can only hurt Coyote by saying "meet meet." <laughs> Can't do anything else. But, I love. I there, also in the rule book was things like Bugs Bunny can never start a fight because then he becomes a bully. He always has to be attacked first, which is why he has that phrase. It's war, right? So now the gloves are off. I can do what I want because you started it. So, um, right. but I think I think a lot of these sort of things, um, it's a bit like when people say, well, the reason people are scared of zombies is because of the fear of a revolt, of the peasant uprising and all that. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. I don't, I don't think that's true at all. I think that is an intellectualization of something that is just simpler than that. Like people like to put these sort of symbols on top of things. And sometimes, yeah, it's there and it's intentional, but other times it's people trying to read a subtext into a creative act that's not there. So for example, the, you know, with horror, for example, um, what's what's scary about zombies is this this fear of being eaten. It's a very simple fear. You're scared of being eaten. And they're done in a certain way and it works, and you know. But this idea that it's a specific kind of fear 
Well, if that, you see the way, I mean, the way art works is you take something that's personal to you, you make it universal, and then the audience recontextualizes it into something personal for them. That's how it works, right? And so what happens is sometimes people, when they think what they took it from, the context of the personalization that they did on their end, must be, they mistake that for the universal thing. It's like, no, because it's got to be true for everyone. That's what makes it universal. Different age groups, different cultures, different times. So, and so if the interpretation is that specific, then to me it's like, well, that might be true. That might be what the artist was even intending. But it's not probably the reason why people felt what they felt because they had to, it still has to, there has to be something universal there. So people who don't have any idea of what a peasant, I mean, that's not primal concern, peasant uprising. So therefore, that can't be, that can't be what resonates with people because that's not what people think about. It's got to be something more universal than that. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I agree that there's definitely like, there's definitely a level of confidence and there's a le- level of personalization that has to be done. That's always going to be there. But um, I think that art can be very different for a lot of people. And there, there are entire, one of the things that I find amazing when I'm, when I'm studying things and I'm looking is when sometimes when you get an artist who looks at the world differently to you, but you get it from their point of view. So like Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, which I just love, I love Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. And I've always been a very structury guy, like, you know, very like, and I always made this, this uh, joke, which was all I want to do is I want to write a story where two guys are punching themselves in, you know, and they're fighting in the heart of a volcano. And that was always my over-the-top ridiculous thing. I'm like, obviously, that's too stupid to do. But I want to do something fun and exciting. But, you know, that's too stupid. Well, the guy who did Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, Araki, that's the season two finale. Wow, and he and I wow. and I watched that, and I was on the edge of my seat because it was so fucking brilliant, and it was crazier than my craziest idea. Because it, I mean, anyone who's seen JoJo knows like how crazy that show is. And I watched it, and I just a, a switch went on, and I went, "There's, there's a, there's, there's a wonderfulness in chaos, and the way he, the way he just does it, like there's all this chaos around it, but it's so disciplined the writing." even though it's very chaotic and so on. And I got his book. I read his book on, on writing and he talks about how Jojo is a, uh, is a, he calls it a pay on for humanity. And basically no matter how bad things are, human beings are noble. Right. And that they, we that good will always find a way. Um, and I just thought like, yeah, that's, that's in there in this absolutely chaotic, crazy, supernatural kinetic action show. Um, And it's not, and so his his thing is not that the kind of thing that you would get from the Ernest Hemingways and the people you mentioned. It's he's his view of it is I'm, when I read his book, I was like, it, I you know I got the feeling from watching the the the, the anime of this. When I read it, I'm like, this is a very different way of looking at things. And so is um, Rebecca Sugar, 
who did Steven Universe. And that's one of the most wholesome, emotionally sensitive things I've ever seen. And it's a 10-minute cartoon aimed at six-year-olds. It's beautiful. Um, so I, 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 I do agree with you that there is that, that is a really important part for some people. Uh, I think that's one way you can get it. But then there's, and then there's other ways that that can come out. Yeah, I, I struggle with this a lot. And it's mm. funny because I'm, as we speak, I'm taking a break from teaching. The responsibility of even remotely suggesting to anyone else how to do this mm. is fraught with danger and ego. And, yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. Yeah. I mean, I shudder to think of some of the great things that, that are out there that had I been the guy's buddy. He said, hey, can you read this? I, I, he said, yeah, that's bullshit. I don't buy that thing. It's like, you know, I don't think Luca Brasi is the guy that the Godfather would ever send to do that job because he's a shitty actor. The guy can barely speak. So, I, you know, Francis, you better rethink this whole thing. I like it's a horrifying response. I, 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 know, I know for a fact that if, they, if, I, if I had been asked, I would have told Vince Gilligan, that cancer thing, we don't need it. Oh, oh my God. I... I know I would have said that. It took 20 people. The first time I heard about Breaking Bad, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's, his kid has special needs and his wife's pregnant and he's got the cancer. Shut the fuck up. But this is garbage. I'm not watching this shit. Right. right. Then like six people are like, no, 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 you got to stay with it. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, uh, yeah, maybe I should give that another shot. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the horror Great. of giving the wrong advice. But um, anyway, we've gotten, we've gotten off the point. So last thing, just to put on that thing real quick, yeah. is whatever your style, whether you say, you know what, I'm not going to think about structure, I'm going to think about just letting it rip, or whatever your angle is, I do think the only thing I think I'm sure we could agree on is if you're all in, if you're authentic, if you're letting it rip from a place that's about mm. true expression, whatever that yeah. is, yes. and you're not trying to impress anyone, yes. And you're now what's so horrifying about the world of social media is it's not enough that we grade kids every day with you're an A, you're a B, you're a C. Yeah. In, in America, we have fast track, slow track. They, they literally right. have like red light, green light. I mean, we put wow. so many grades and labels on kids. And now, oh, like I know for sure I've, I've tweeted things that I know are brilliant. They're from like the most brilliant people ever. And they're not even. And they, they die out there a lonely, yeah. sad, pitiful death. Yes. And then I tweet some dumb shit that I saw. And it's, it's like whatever. For me, like 20 likes is like a yeah. billion yeah. likes. Yeah. So, yes. But that issue, though, is if you need external validation, you're dead. You're I, dead. I agree. No great author has ever sought that. No, that I, I know. That I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I agree with that. That that sort of desire to yeah, I I think if you're chasing anything other than whatever you want to get out of the writing, you could get easier than writing, <laughs> right? Like if you want money, oh you can make God. it. You can make money easier. If you want fame, you can make fame easier. You won't if it's not the writing itself. If that isn't what you want to do, then you may as well just focus on something else. I guess. 
but yeah. I see. Any, any art. Yeah. So, okay. I think, I think, <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. And that was good. Um, I like that. Um, uh, you know, I, I have so many things I want to tell you. Even if it's just a bro talk one night, this is, it, I have so, my career was so breathtakingly ridiculous. As I'm talking to you, I'm thinking of other things that happened. And it's, it's really something. And again, it's, it, and it, but it's, but, but what's interesting is I was misaligned. Mm. That's what I've learned. I just want creative control. That's right. all I care about. But it's taken me 25 years. And that's mm. not an exact, that's a real number of martial arts, mm. therapy, mm. coaching, and countless hours of reflection and journaling just to get to where I am today, which is that if I like it, it's actually good enough. Yeah. It may not be good enough for the world. It may not win yeah. awards. It may not get published. Yeah. But if I like it, it's good. And I'm not yeah. a fucking moron. I know craft. I know sure. my heart. Yeah. But I didn't know that. Honestly, I don't think I knew that. And LA is, is it, it's, I, I fancy myself a punk, but I was in LA begging for approval because that's all you do. Right. You go to meetings. Please call me. Please put me on your TV staff. And you, please, be my lawyer, please be my agent, please be my manager. Please. And it's and and you wake up one day and you go, I have no idea who I am. I don't right. know what I don't even know what's going on. Yeah. And we don't teach kids that I'm aware of hardly any of this and, at all. And also you mentioned this, we don't teach people how to deal with things like how do you write when your kid is sick? This this is this is an auditory thing. No one can see you nod. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm giving the biggest nod imaginable. Like my seven chins just went berserk, pushing into my chest. But no, oh, thank you. But, but no, best. Also, like I once sat with a, a writer who's smoking cigarettes, chain smoking. Mm. I, I honestly thought he was going to have a heart attack. He actually did pass away more than later. But this truly happened to him. Two executives threatened to fire him mm -hmm. if he didn't do what they said, mm -hmm. and their notes were utterly conflicted. Really? Wow. So, you know, again, that's, that's the vintage McKee provoked dilemma. Well, what do you do? <laughs> and he was begging us to, we got a couple of guys together, we're having drinks, and he's going, what do I do? How do I get out of this? And it's like, dude, there is no getting out of this. I don't know. Somehow you, but they don't teach any of that. Like, no. it's hard enough to write. But when high pressure, and, and when you see behind the curtain the nastiness and the what the fangs that come out and the hostility and the last TV show I worked for, if you imagine the worst Thanksgiving dinner humanly imaginable, and you imagine if you bring in Stephen Hawking and you say if thirteen writers are in a room, how many can possibly hate each other yeah. in different ways? That was this room, right. and in that environment you have to create. I watched meanness. You you can't even I, I almost right. don't believe to this day I saw what I saw. Right. And then you think I do the right thing and get myself fired. How do I go to my wife right. and say, honey, I stood up for this writer who's being bullied. I lost my job and I don't know how we're gonna make ends meet. And I'm sure, especially nowadays, there are incidents I think back on and I think I'm gonna have to answer to the big man when I die about that yeah. what I did there, because yeah. I didn't I watched that and I Yeah. I, and again, I felt like I was in creative Vietnam. Like I really felt like I watched a guy berate a woman 
like you couldn't even like the nastiest thing I've done. Wow. And I, I knew if I spoke up, he'd have fired me. He was the right. co-exec. Absolutely would have fired me. Mm. And I worked two years to get in that room. Right. And I've been nobly fired many times. And, yeah. And I went, nope, I'm I'm sitting here, I'm doing this. And they don't you gotta study that. You yeah. have to learn how to deal with that beforehand. Yeah. To know, like some people might have said, you know what, I'm not watching this. I'll lose my job if I got to work at Burger yeah. King. So be it. But I'm not putting up so, with this shit. So do you? Which I like to think I do now. Do you? Do, do you like set limits? Like, there's a certain thing. Like, here there'd be dragons, and I'm not going to go past this. Like this kind of thing. Like you said, like before, you used to do, get fired for something noble. But in this situation, you said, "No, I'm going to sit here." So, is there in in your head? I guess over time, and maybe even now. Do you think to yourself, like, this is a th thing I will not cross. I don't care how much I want to write. I don't care how much I think is set on this. I, I don't care how much money this can make, whatever. Uh, no story is worth this price. Do you have that in your head of, like, specific things? It will going forward, without a doubt. Mm. And I, I will not... Um, you know, but it's it's so funny how morality and ethics and things work. Because right now I'm in a very strong financial condition. Mm. Back then I was like, we were we were really struggling, like how we were going to get the thing, places we wanted to go. Mm. And um, but I do think having ethics, having care. But one one thing that's really important that I do want to say that I think is so important. Having been, I've been in high levels of writing. Mm. I have. People who have no writing talent, in my opinion, mm. but who are fiercely intelligent and incredibly driven, be successful. And I have seen people who have immense talent, but they're too sensitive to navigate this. Mm. And they go kablooey. So, and you know, obviously there are people who are great people, brilliantly strategic, and have incredible, but it is like Breaking Bad. It is like the Shield. But, but not necessarily. You have to navigate. But with not great intelligence. Yeah, but I don't mean necessarily. Maybe I could have said to that guy, "Stop talking to this woman like that." Yeah, I'm not mad. I don't want to embarrass you. I like maybe there was a way to to deflate to to, to deescalate that, right? And not get fired. But I back then, I, I I didn't. I was just I couldn't. I just was in shock. But I don't mean necessarily just ethical um, boundaries. I mean, just other yeah. boundaries, like logistical ones or whatever. Like, for example, it, in your head, is there a certain amount of money that at which point you go, you know what, sunk costs, I'm done. I'm not going to put any more money or I'm not going to go put any more time into a project that isn't paying out because that you, – do you, do you think you ever have anything like that in your head? Do you have those kind of boundaries? I Going forward, I will, meaning I think you do have to decide, are you in this for the money? Are you doing this as a gig to make money? And that's fine. Mm -hmm. do, then you work for the man and you do what the man tells you and you be a good boy. Right. And you put your, make sure your, 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 your house code is on properly and serve the tea. Mm -hmm. Or are you a rebel who's an independent what drives me crazy about friends of mine, and, and, and again, I'm not like I've transcended this, what I can't stand is guys who are in L.A. 
who bitch and whine and cry about all their bad treatment. And I'm like, you're, they, they, my joke was, you're like someone who's dating a, a drug addicted prostitute. And you know, you've married her. Mm-hmm. And now you're shocked to come home and she is banging the, the, the mm-hmm. Maytag man. On, and you're going, my darling, I thought you loved me. It's like, what right. are you, you know what I mean? You need yeah. to know where you are, what you're doing. And, and, but I hate it when people say they're going to be like punk rock loners right. and then whine about the way they're treated. It's right. like, you're a loner, dude. Yeah. Walk the lonely path like a man. You don't need external help. So right. I noticed the difference in my opinion between failures and successes. And those are mean judgmental words between yeah. people who are having more contentment from their creativity. Yeah. Those people know who they are, know what price they're paying, know what game they're playing, and they play it really well. And I know a lot of writers who are talented but very unhappy, very unsuccessful, and it's always complaints. Critics are phony. Right. Agents are phony. The, the, the My thing with my script was fantastic. And I'm like, actually, no, it wasn't. Act two, you went off your out of your mind. It's fine if you love that. <laughs> But you lost your mind in act two. No one yeah. knows what happened. I, I have, a, I, have so, a, I have a little rule for myself, which is uh, I refuse, um, I refuse to work past, um, past a certain time of day. Um, uh-huh. I remember too many times at university and stuff where I would be up to four in the morning, whatever, writing, and yeah. I decided if you're writing like that you're you're making a mistake um the work shouldn't shouldn't do that to you you should be able to have a reasonable ability to produce work and go to sleep i i i get the sense that you can be inspired and you still want to write that that i'm a bit more like if i'm really if i'm really feeling it or whatever i might let myself write a bit but I mean the crunch. I mean that deadline. You know, what, what, it's what people in the video game industry actually call crunch time. I, for me, I will not do crunch time anymore. I won't do it. If someone yeah. says, we need to get something done and you've got an hour and it's got to be done by today. And I'm like, that's a 10 hour job. And I am not staying up till four in the morning to do it. If it couldn't be done, if it was this important to get done by this time, then it should have been set up and done earlier. It's not my fault right. that at the last minute something's gone wrong and I'm not fixing it in some stupid time. You can just hold up the rest of the thing because I'm not putting myself through that. I'm not, I'm not going to drive myself to an early grave. I'm not doing that stuff. And I, and the, So for me, my big sort of like, you know, how do you balance, how, how, how do you deal with the fact that you never stop writing? Like that, that isn't. It's not a nine to five job. How do you do it? For me, I'm like, there are certain things where when I decide I'm not writing, I don't write. Like if right. I'm going to spend my time with my niece, I'm not writing. I'm not going to do yeah. it. And uh, if so, and I don't care. Like no, I because I noticed. You know what I noticed? I noticed that the people who put you in crunch time, their schedules never get messed up for crunch time. You ever notice that? They never do it. It, Yeah. It's always someone else who has to do it. And so I've just, and I noticed this with friends where I would reassess my schedule to fit theirs, but they never did it for me. For example, 
uh, we're trying to arrange to do something. And I'm like, okay, I'll move my things around so I can be free the day you're free and we'll do the thing. Okay. But then when it was the other way around, they'll go, well, we'll just do the thing without you. To which my response is like, okay, so when I put my time aside, that's okay. I'm, I should sacrifice my time, but you should never sacrifice yours. So I have this way of thinking about it. So like if I've decided I'm not going to write, like I am taking the day off, I'm going to spend time with family, I'm going to do this. I am not writing. And there's no crunch time. Oh, yeah. There's nothing. I no. think that's knowing who you are and what price pay. I'll tell you a really super fast story Go. about ethic and about, about I was once working up on a screenplay with a guy who is a really noted rock photographer. And he's done a lot of bands that I love and a lot of genres that I love. We became close friends and he told me this amazing story of how he became who he was. Okay. And we are working on the script. We worked on it. Oh my God, I can't tell you how hard. We had a 330 page first draft because I loved every story. Wow. And then we're like, okay. And then we worked for, I'd say 18 months mm. and we got that thing. I was like, this is one moment. It's one of the coolest moments of my life as a human being. Mm -hmm. I realized he wasn't telling me the truth of something that was happening. Right. And I said, you got to tell me we're here. Something's not adding up. And he shared a horrifying personal story. And I convinced him to put it in because it was it was essential. Right. And it was it was his heroism of his life. And it just made everything make sense. And as we were close to finishing, yeah. we were no, we were pretty much done. He came to me and he said, I can't do it. I can't do this. He said it's too personal. Right. My and I, I fled for 18 months. Yeah. And I truly to this day believe yeah. it would have been something. Yeah. And he took it and made it into like a Disney thing, right. and it never sold. And it went. But to be honest, for me, that is a good example of I. I it, it taught me next time I'm controlling anything I write, like I can't, <laughs> I can't risk that. Like I lost 18 months of blood. Yeah. Of and yeah. But I never would put. This is one of my best friends. I love him with every fiber yeah. of my being, and I. What can you say to your friend when he says, I can't do this? I cannot put my family through. I can't drag this into the right, yeah. light. Yeah. And no matter how much I said, but it's heroic. Hmm. It's it's your truth. It's There's a million other kids who would see this and be like, but he couldn't do it. And that was it. And and I, hmm. you know what I mean? So having your ethical compass is, is really important. But yeah. sometimes I do think, man, I should have had the guts to make him do it. <laughs> because the world would have been, a, and how do you navigate that morality? Like, I truly believe, had that thing been pushed through and got made, it would have done infinite good in the world from Maybe. other kids who would have said, "Wow, that I'm not alone. Yeah. This shit happens." Yeah, I guess. I guess anyway. my, my feeling is, maybe you know, you just take solace that it's not your call. Hundred percent, and I love him. I was never mad at him. Yeah, to this sure. day, I'll go to him and think you should maybe look at that draft again. But anyway, Solis, I'll shut up. <laughs> I so love talking to you, and I demand yeah. this that you keep this in the thing. You are, you will be embarrassed. You will probably cut this. What's but that? your your eloquence and precision, precision is my favorite word. This is hard to talk about. Mm. To to talk about why a script works. And to talk about it, the, the, the terror of talking anything to do with dramatic structure is you will suck the X factor out. You'll pull yeah. the, the magic out. And you 
always talk about structure in a way that elevates, dignifies, pushes to the archetypal, and I'm your biggest fan. And I demand that that be included. You're right. I will cut this out. <laughs> okay. It's so great talking to you, and thanks so much for chatting with me. I hope there's some yeah. good stuff here. And uh, that was that was wonderful. All right, thank you so much, okay. and uh, we'll chat soon. No problem. Man. And uh, one day is just. For I want to tell you some other ridiculous. Things. For people who might want to, be, uh, best way to follow you, or maybe, or to get in contact with cool. you if they wanted to. It's a good question, and I'm about to. I want to. I, I want to like to lead all my social media, everything lately. But no, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at, at Dan Joshua Rubin, and I have a website at DanielJoshuaRubin.com. And you've soon got, I'm going to put up StoryPrinciples.com. Yeah. And, so, okay. And you've got your book uh, out. Your book is out. It's been out for a year My book now. is out. It seems to be very well reviewed. It's called 27 Essential Principles of Story. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, great. I think we're all good. Thanks so much, and we'll talk soon. All right, thank you. It's so great talking. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Basim Story, and other ways to find and support this podcast can be found in this episode's description. Jazakallah.